Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Christopher Krebs on the show, and we'll be talking about his new work, A Most Dangerous Book, Tacitus's Germania, From the Roman Empire to the Third Reich. Being a professional historian is a bit of a slog. You have to spend a lot of time in graduate school, and then you work for a long time in libraries and archives, and then you teach students who are, as one of my colleagues says, casual about their studies. But being a historian does have its moments, and one of them, a guilty pleasure, I would say, is when we encounter people getting things terribly wrong. I can only imagine that Christopher Krebs had a wonderful time writing this book, because it is an epic tale of getting it wrong. Starting about 500 years ago, people began to write and say all kinds of crazy things about Tacitus's Germania. I won't detail them because we talk about them in the interview. I will only tell you that almost all of them were completely wrongheaded. And this would be funny were it not for the fact that these quote-unquote interpretations led a lot of bad people to do very bad things and I'm thinking about the Nazis in particular. I will let Christopher tell the story, and he does a very, very good job of it. I should also add that this book is wonderfully written. It is very witty. There are many lines in it which I still have lodged in my head, and I find it just remarkable that somebody whose first language was not English, actually Christopher's second language was not English, I think, not even his third, could write this well. It's really quite an achievement. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Christopher. Hi, Marshall. Uh, how are you today? Uh, not too bad. How about yourself? Good. I'm very well. Thank you. Today we are speaking with Christopher Krebs, and we'll be talking about his new book called A Most Dangerous Book, Tacitus' Germania from the Roman Empire to the Third Reich. I've read this book, and I have to tell you, it is uh, both a wonderful piece of scholarship, and it is written in a terrifically witty Rye style, something that I really appreciate. I was smiling on almost every page 
thinking not only that these turns of phrase were wonderful, but they were turns of phrase by somebody who's, this is, this is, this is I think, Christopher's second or third or fourth or fifth language. I don't know how many <laughs> languages Christopher knows, but uh, for someone who didn't, uh, I guess, grow up speaking English, it really is, is quite a marvelous thing to behold, and I have to congratulate you on that. Well, for being you, wonderful, you know, certainly. And, um, and I hope that everybody goes out and looks at the book, because it's a significant book. Uh, it uh, it, it speaks about the uh, transmission of uh, a particular text and the motifs in that text uh, through a very long period of time and, and into modern times where this book had a kind of significant impact. And, you know, these kinds of things still go on today. The tropes that we live with are alive, and many of them are from in the deep recesses of the time. And in my own experience, many of them are wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, so anyway, we have to congratulate Christopher for that too. Uh, Christopher, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, okay. Um, so, as you as you said, my uh, my first language is not English. As a matter of fact, I was I was born in Berlin, um, but my mother is from Scandinavia, so I ended up learning Swedish as my mother tongue and then German as my, my second language. And I would also spend quite a bit of time in Sweden. I moved there um, right after high school, actually, uh, just for a gap year, basically. Um, English came third, I think, or fourth in my <laughs> curriculum of languages. So it was Swedish and then obviously German. And then the first language I learned, the first foreign language I learned at school uh, was fortunately Latin. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, nice irony. It, it, it served me well later, but of course I didn't know that when I was nine years old and had to make up my mind. Um, then came English at high school and ancient Greek as well. Um, I, uh, as I said, after high school, I, I moved to Sweden, um, spent a good time with my grandmother and just kind of working and finding my feet, moved back to Germany, started studying, um, was again kind of interested in various things. I did, um, journalism at first and political sciences and philosophy, but then, Kind of went back to the classics for a number of reasons um, and moved also within Germany from Berlin up to Kiel, which is a fairly small, like it's not almost city town, um, about an hour or so away from Hamburg. Moved there because they had a, a wickedly strong classics department, mm -hmm. um, very conservative in that it insisted on actually little else. But um, like having the students write in both Latin and Greek, so translate German into Latin and Greek and really learn the languages and read a lot of the literature. Mm -hmm. And then moved from there on to, to England uh, for altogether almost three years. Um, and that was a very, very good move for me because it opened up a very different perspective on the classics, um, less linguistic and language-based and more theoretical and open and, well, someone could almost say sexy. Um, <laughs> and then from from England, I moved to the U.S. and I've been here for eight years now, actually. Mm -hmm. I just have to say, uh, for the listeners who don't know, and I think many of them don't, that the kind of education you have is uh, almost impossible to get in the United States. 
yeah, that's we, true. We yeah. do not we do not train people in ancient languages from very early on. I mean, further, we really don't train people in foreign languages from very early on. But the idea that a junior high school student, which is what we would call it in the United States, mm-hmm. would learn Greek or Latin is uh, more or less completely foreign. I imagine there are some places, some private schools, where you probably can get it. And there are probably some public schools as well where it is still available. But I can tell you that, yeah, I mean, it's it's really the case that, uh, yeah, I mean, I I imagine you didn't have a problem getting a visa to the United States because there really is nobody here who can do what you do. (laughs) (laughs) But I I also thought I should should say that I, I, I greatly appreciate you commenting on on the style of a most dangerous book because that was really one of the things that I wanted to accomplish. I, I really enjoyed um, playing with the language, um, you know, coming up with um, the, the turns of phrase mm-hmm. that may hopefully s- stick in the mind of one or two readers. Um, so it's greatly appreciated that you actually, that you commented on that. Well, I mean, you know, that's stuck in my mind because I mentioned one in the pre-interview. I was, you know, yeah, I sit yeah. with my wife and I read these things out loud and I say, uh, in the jealous way that I do, why couldn't I write that? Any kind of comfort, I, many of them really, um, I had to slave over, yeah. um, labor over. So, yeah, well, I can tell you that I promised to use some of them without attribution. And that's the highest. That's the highest compliment anyone can. <laughs> so, so let's um, let's uh, let me ask you this: How, Why did you write this book? How did you come to write this book, um, the most dangerous book? Well, I, I the the first book I wrote was also on Tacitus Germania, but it was a more academic, thoroughly academic German book um, on. Tacitus Germania within the Greek and Roman ethnographical tradition. So I tried to elaborate on what you mentioned earlier, that many of those stereotypes um, and tropes have a very, very long tradition. And I I tried to trace some of them and reinterpret them. And then in the second part of the book, I looked at a few Italian and German humanists in the 15th century, early 16th century, and how they continued those tropes and stereotypes. And in researching that book, I very often came across references to later texts that would also use specific parts um, from the from the Germania, um, and I, I, I started looking more carefully, reading a little bit more broadly, and I realized that there was an actually much more interesting, much more, much broader, and much more interesting story to tell, and that is ultimately the story that I then now I'm telling in the book, which is how the Germania came to shape the German sense of nationality. Mm-hmm. Um, how the Germania ultimately came to be one of the ideological cornerstones, really, of national socialist ideology. Mm-hmm. How the Germania was not just read by, by, by Germans, but actually for many, many centuries, um, it would be read by Italians, by Frenchmen, by Englishmen, uh, by Scandinavians, um, all of whom were using the text in order to further their own arguments. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I then ultimately decided to really sit down and, and write this book when I came across a very brief, tantalizing remark by Arnaldo Momigliano, an intellectual historian of the 20th century, a voracious reader and prolific scholar who had, I think, published close to 100 articles by the time he was 35. And in passing, in a, in a talk, he refers to the Germania as one of the 100 most dangerous books ever written. And this passing remark he made, I think, in the 19, early 1960s, I forget. But he doesn't explain why. But it's, it's not so difficult to gather what he was thinking of, you know, given um, you know, his nationality and his interests and the time that um, he, he made that particular comment. So I, I set out um, to explain why one could indeed um, refer to the Germania as a most dangerous book. Mm-hmm. But what, it, what made it ultimately so fascinating to me was not the fact that it is one of the most quoted texts in National Socialist pamphlets and propaganda and, um, and and doctrine. What made it fascinating to me was the realization that over centuries the Germania had influenced those writers and shaped or helped shape those discourses that would then in the course of the 19th century merge into the Völkisch movement, mm-hmm. from which then, as as we as as is well established and well known, from which national socialist ideology would then emerge. Mm-hmm. So basically, I I believe that Momigliano referred to the Germania as a most dangerous book because of the usage it had been put to in national socialist ideology. But what makes it a most dangerous book for me is its history of influence. The fact that really over 400 years, it is a surprisingly, one could almost say weirdly often quoted and used text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. Uh, One thing I want to point out for everyone listening is that this sort of influence – although it may seem odd to us, really isn't odd at all if you think about the Old and New Testaments. That's very true. These are texts that were written a very long time ago in an entirely different context, and they have arguably shaped our entire civilization. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, and, and Germani is one of these one of these ancient texts that was, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of the the biblical uh, texts, they were they were maintained pretty much steadily throughout. Germania had to be rediscovered, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, they are they come from a different time in a different place. You know, they say the past is a foreign country, and as we'll yeah. point out in a second, the. Tacitus wasn't really writing about any place we would recognize. Uh, So let's begin by talking about Tacitus. Who was he? And what do we know about him? (laughs) So Tacitus is a a Roman historian. Uh, He's probably or arguably the most eminent Roman historian. He lived from the 50s uh, CE into the 120s. 
Um, so he was born in the into the reign of Nero, and he died probably um, in the in the age of of Hadrian, the the emperor, the traveling emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a was an eminent politician, um, a senator. He was a consul, which was even under even under the emperor still the highest administrative office in the Roman Empire. Um, he was a well-known, one could almost say famous public speaker. And he, like many other members of the Roman elite, suffered under the increasingly tyrannical and bloody reign of Domitian, the last of the Flavian emperors who died, or rather was assassinated in 96 CE. Mm -hmm. And Tacitus would then, only two years later, publish his first minor work, um, the biography of his father-in-law, Agricola. Um, It's a it's actually already a masterpiece because while it pretends to just talk about his father-in-law and his life and career and accomplishments, it very much already is a reflection on moral values under an autocrat, mm-hmm. how to live your life, how to live a public life, um, under a tyrannical princeps. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are very vivid, very, very touching parts in which Tacitus writes about himself, how he basically um, bloodied his hands by not speaking up. Um, when one can clearly see that we, we all are very careful when we infer from a written text to the life and character of the author of the text. But it is nevertheless clear that um, Tacitus was struggling, um, explaining also to himself the role that he had played under Domitian, because we should not forget that he actually only under Domitian reached the highest rung of the the cursus honorum of the career path within the Roman political system. So in 98... Just after two years after the assassination of the tyrant Domitian, Tacitus publishes the Agricola, and only a few months later, he publishes the Germania. Um, also in ninety-eight, um, it's a it's a shortish. It's a booklet, basically thirty-five pages in total, consisting of two parts. The first one is generally talking about the Germanic people. And the second part then basically goes through the individual Germanic tribes. Mm -hmm. So the Goth, um, the Teutons, um, the Swaves, and um, many, many more. I think it's in the 40s in total. Mm -hmm. Shortly thereafter, he wrote the Dialogus, which is another really fascinating text. It's a reflection ultimately on the freedom of speech and on the correlation between political system, political climate, and cultural accomplishments. And while he was working on the dialogue, his third minor work, he was already at work 
um, on his first um, major work, The Histories, uh, which he published probably around 110. Um, it's uh, 12 books. It deals with Roman history from 69, um, the year of the three emperors, uh, the four, four emperors actually, because Vespasian then took over, 296. Um, 12 books in total, probably, but we only have five, actually. Mm -hmm. And once that was done, he decided to, and this is another really interesting part, he decided to go back further in time, breaking his own promise, because in his earlier work, he had said that he would write about his happy present times, but once he was done with the histories, having reached 96 CE, he decided to go all the way back to the death of the first Emperor Augustus. Um, so instead of kind of continuing from, say, 96 to 110 or something, uh, he decided to go back to 14 CE and tell the story from um or tell the story of the of the of the Claudian Julian Claudian dynasty so starting with the death of Augustus to the death of of Nero the mm -hmm. last Julio Claudian emperor um and this is this is tantalizing because um of course people speculate over why Tacitus decided to go even further back in time and I personally believe that he decided to do so. It's in a way, it's an archaeology of of power or an archaeology of of the principate, in order to understand the nature and the character of the principate fully. I believe Tacitus thought that he had to go back to its very beginnings mm -hmm. to see how it was set up and to kind of basically develop a full picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why did he um, – well, one thing I want to say is that uh, a reader of the book will note that you are very clear that actually we don't really know a lot about Tacitus. Yes, that, that's that, true. That the true sources are incredibly meager. Yes, um, and, and, I mean, it, and it's actually it's, – I think it's also a very good part or it's a, it's a very good um, example of how tenuous our knowledge connection to the ancient world mm -hmm is most of the times. I mean, yeah. we are really, we depend upon, um, you know, reconstructed inscriptions, bits and pieces in his own work, bits and pieces in the correspondence of his contemporary Pliny the Younger. Um, it really is very much like a, like a detective story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I remember that um, one of my mentors, actually a professor at Harvard, Edward Keenan, used to say that everything we know about Ivan the Terrible could fit on one or two pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. really kind of true. Maybe maybe yeah. three pages. I mean, he might have given a little bit more, but we really don't know very much. But yeah. in any event, uh, let's turn to the Germania itself. What, why did Tacitus write it? Do we know why? Yeah, that's another very, very good uh, question. Um, so this is, you know, as I said, 98. Um, happier times seem to have started and, uh, you know, to, to, to lie ahead. Um, 
it makes perfect sense for Tacitus to write a biography of his father-in-law, but why did he decide to take advantage of his newly gained freedom of speech to write about those Germanic tribes in the north of Europe? I think one of the reasons is that Trajan, um, the newly installed Roman emperor, was stationed at the Rhine River when he became emperor in 98. And one has to know that the Germanic tribes had posed for over 200 years, as Tacitus says himself, the major question to Rome's foreign policy. Um, they had uh, invaded Italy and wreaked havoc there uh 200 years before, uh, were then beaten by, by Marius, a famous Republican Roman general. Um, they, the Germanic tribes, accounted for Rome's worst uh, defeat, um, the so-called Varian defeat, when three Roman legions, and this is under the reign of Augustus, when three Roman legions were completely wiped out. Um, caused nightmares to the Emperor Augustus, who, if we believe um, the biographer Suetonius, ran around in his palace uh, crying, um, Varus, return my legions. Mm -hmm. um, so th this, was, this was one of the major defeats um, of the Roman Empire ever. I mean, it, it really ranks high, high up there uh, in the list of, of, of greatest traumas suffered. Um, and almost a hundred years later, the Germania, as, as the Romans called the territory, was still the big open question in Rome's foreign policy. And it looks like um, that situation um, with Trajan stationed there, first-hand knowledge of the territory, um, and Tacitus maybe believing, maybe hoping that this might be the time to deal a serious blow to the Germanic tribes was one of the reasons why he decided to write the Germania in 98. Mm -hmm. But that's really only what triggered it, because if you look at the, if you read the Germania carefully, you realize that he there does what he also does in the Agricola and also does then later in the Dialogus, which is that he thinks about human values. He thinks about morality. He thinks about honesty, simplicity, piety, um, bravery, um, and how these values fare depending on changing political social circumstances. Um, why, say, the Germanic famous bravery and um, skills in, in, in warfaring come at the expense of cultural achievements? I mean, he's got a very, very, in my eyes, he's got a very well-developed sense of antinomies so that certain values there are several values that we actually like 
and that we would like to see flourish. But unfortunately, they are at least in part mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And he's also, in my eyes, a, a, a marvelous sense of the ambivalence of even the positive values. For example, he that you know the, the the Germanic tribes were famous for their libertas, for their for their freedom and for their striving, for their sense of freedom, for their striving for freedom. So that was one of those positive values. But the very first time that Tacitus actually explicitly speaks of libertas is in a is in a negative context, and he actually says that it takes those Germanic tribes forever to get together for a debate because um, you know they, they basically show up whenever they want to mm-hmm. um, and he said that this is one negative it's a it's a it's a fault of their overdeveloped sense of, of freedom um, so the the Germania may have been triggered and I think that's really the most plausible scenario may have been triggered by the political situation in Rome with the newly established emperor stationed at the Rhine. But what Tacitus tries to do with the Germania goes way beyond the kind of momentary political interest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. What did uh, Tacitus actually know about uh, these people? Yeah. That's another, you know, that's another kind of fascinating little circumstance, which is that even though many, many readers for centuries uh, would assert that Tacitus actually had first-hand knowledge of the Germanic tribes and Germania, and even though even more recently um, very serious scholars have again tried to make it plausible that there was some kind of connection. It remains extremely doubtful, and one could say that even if he had actually traveled to the territory that he writes about, there is very, very little in the text that would indicate such a first-hand knowledge, because most of the characteristics that Tacitus attributes to the Germanic tribes are stereotypes, which he had called from previous Roman and Greek writers on foreign peoples. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the most eminent Latinists of the 20th century, um, Eduard Norden, produced a marvelous, actually rather hefty tome, um, in which he showed that some of the most famous attributes um, that Tacitus assigned to the to the Germanic tribes had actually already been attributed before to, say, the Egyptians mm-hmm. or the Scythians. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he referred to them as, as wandering motives, as wandering stereotypes, basically. Um, this is not to say that the Germania has no historical value whatsoever, um, because it is also rather plausible that Tacitus will have talked to either Roman soldiers with first-hand experience um, with the Germanic tribes, or merchants, or 
Germanic soldiers or slaves in the service of Romans. So he would probably have made a little bit of an effort to actually get closer to the realities in Northern Europe. But it is, I think, equally important to realize that it was not his intention to give a most accurate account of what life is like uh, in Northern Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, he, it's a rhetorical exercise. It's extremely well-written, extremely carefully crafted. And his, his interests and his ultimate purpose or purposes with the text overrule any attempt to um, give an accurate picture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tell me this, who were the people that he says he's describing and what relation do they have with the people who live in North Central Europe today? Yes, it's another very, very difficult question because one of the reasons why the Germania was so immensely influential was because um, starting with the 15th century, readers would draw a direct line from contemporary Germans to their Germanic ancestors. In other words, for most readers starting with the 15th century, the Germanen, or the Germani in Latin, and the Germans were the same people at different times in history. Mm -hmm. But that is, that's a, that's a fundamentally flawed assumption because, first of all, um, the Germanic tribes, or at least the Germanic people as one people, is, as far as we can tell, pretty much a Roman invention. It is Gaius Julius Caesar, the famous general and politician and also writer of uh, his commentary, among others, um, was the first one to actually refer to the Germanic tribes east of the Rhine River as one people. He decided to draw, to basically re- draw the map of Europe, and he established the Rhine River as a borderline between Gaul to its left or to the west and Germania to its east, mm -hmm. even though, as he himself actually acknowledges, there were Germanic tribes living on the other side of the Rhine River. So um, Germania as a territory and the Germanic tribes as a people was very, very much a Roman construction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and today when we talk about Germanic tribes, that's also a very, very difficult question because we either use a linguistic criterion or we use an archaeological criterion mm -hmm. Um, or we use a kind of weirdly geographical criterion. Um, and I mean, there's no doubt that there's, you know, that there's some kind of connection between those Germanic tribes living, you know, east of the Rhine 2000 years ago 
and you know Germans living there these days. But it is so tenuous and so <laughs> fractured that one should really not draw that connection. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of an analogy that would be telegraphic to um, Americans or to me, really. And this is kind of what I came up with. Imagine mm-hmm. that if in 1,500 years uh, we um, we decided that the um, that there were these people called Indians. Mm-hmm. And they were our ancestors. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and we had one text that talks about these Indians, and we're yes. called Indians, in fact. Yes. Yeah. And 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 that actually we are we are we are the fruit of their loin, right there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's some truth to that. I mean, obviously, these populations mixed at some of point. Course. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's why I said that there's a tenuous, yeah, but very the, fractious link. Right. But it doesn't really. It's not the whole picture that's right. of, that's of right. the way we're going to be in 1,500 years. That's um, right. So, so we'll come to the we'll come to the, uh, the the revival of these texts in kind of the late Middle Ages. Uh, before that, let's uh, talk about the long, sometimes called Dark Ages, because as with so many of these classical texts, and I just find this fascinating, Tacitus disappears. Yes, <laughs> completely. Yes, actually, he's, it's, it's it's and that's another irony, really, because his his contemporary Pliny the Younger had predicted or promised that Tacitus' works and with his works, the writer, would be immortal. But only a hundred years after that prediction, it didn't look all that likely, actually. Um, And we have, to kind of limit the discussion to, to the Germania, we have only one absolutely undisputed and certain usage of the Germania in the Middle Ages, and that's in the context of the Carolingian Renaissance, so um, Charlemagne's efforts to revive um, not just the military power, but also the cultural grandeur of the Roman Empire. So we have this one extensive usage in the southwest of Germany um, in, in Fulda, um, and other than that, uh, we hear next to nothing about Tacitus Germania. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the picture is not much better um, for his other works. Um, and it's an indication um, of, of the difficulties that he, that he encountered that big parts of, of his works actually were lost mm-hmm. in the face of, of of transmission because we should not forget that the only reason, and that's also, I think, a really kind of fascinating uh, little aspect to the whole story, the only reason that we can still read texts written 2,000 or sometimes um, at least kind of... Um, you know, conceived of 3,000 years ago, the only reason why we can still read these texts is because they were copied by mm-hmm. hand, first by slaves and then later by monks. And if they weren't read or if they weren't copied, then they would just simply disappear. Yeah. Um, and in the instance of Tacitus, his his minor works survived in one single manuscript only from all that we can mm-hmm. see or kind of reconstruct now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's one of those, <laughs> of course, highly speculative but equally interesting questions uh, to wonder what would have happened 
if the Germania had not been rediscovered in the course of the 15th century. Mm-hmm. And I should um, say, you know, I mean, I think you're right. These, these, this is not particularly unusual either. Uh, no, lots of texts come down to us in basically one or two copies. Yeah. And, and they assumed, uh, I was thinking of them a bit like Ireland. They punch far above their weight. You know, there's only one text left, but it assumes this tremendous importance. I think Beowulf yeah. exists in one. It was, it, it, it was really only one early copy of it. And the, huh. the other interesting thing to kind of remark on is that, uh, that, that the earliest extant version of this thing really isn't very old. In the, in the case of, of Tacitus, when's the earliest? That manuscript? is true. I mean, actually, well, it's it's again interesting because so we the Germania is the Germania the the, the, the manuscript that attracted Heinrich Himmler's attention in the early twentieth century is actually a hand copied um, manuscript of the fifteenth century. Mm-hmm. So this is the oldest text that we have in the instance of the Germania. Mm-hmm. Of the Agricola, so the biography of his father-in-law that was written uh, only a, a couple of months earlier, probably, um, we, for the most part, we also have only this manuscript of the 15th century. But into that manuscript of the 15th century, some sheets of a manuscript going back to the 9th century have been pasted, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there we we kind of we actually managed to go further back in time, back into the Carolingian Renaissance. But you're absolutely right. The Germania text, the oldest Germania text as we have it still today, it's now um, in Rome at the Biblioteca Nazionale. Um, it only goes back to the 15th century. Yeah, I, I just find that incredible. But uh, and I think it's it's just something that we have to keep reminding ourselves that what we have is a copy of a of a of a text that we think was was written. Uh, yes, uh, you know, over a thousand years, well, around a thousand years before we have the actual uh, the dated man or the the manuscript that we have dated, and dating these things is tricky in and of itself. Absolutely, uh, tried and a little why, of it, and yeah, you're absolutely right. This is why um, there actually there has been the suggestion that the Germania was never written by Tacitus. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's true. Um, you can make an entirely scholarly career being a skeptic in classical studies, <laughs> and people have made good ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good ones. Well, so this uh, text um, reappears in the context of uh, the Renaissance. Let's just put it generically. And uh, mm-hmm. who finds it, and how do they find it? Yeah, <laughs> uh, and another minor mystery. Um, so, as I mentioned, for almost fifteen hundred years, almost all we hear of Tacitus Germania is silence. Um, and then, really quite out of the blue, in the early 15th century, in the 1420s, uh, Poggio Bracciolini, an Italian humanist manuscript hunter um, and active in the papal service, uh, communicates, writes a little letter to a close friend of his, also a bibliophile and manuscript hunter, mentioning that he has some news, which is that um, works of Tacitus heretofore unknown to us um, are said to be somewhere in in Germany. This is the first time that we hear anything about the Germania in modern times. And um, it sets off this hunt for a manuscript 
and it's really fascinating because we have the we have the humanist correspondence. We can we read how Poggio is getting impatient with this German monk who has promised the Germania but is not delivering, and he makes another attempt, and he he tries to threaten him and bribe him, and um, at the same time he's strangely taciturn and almost mysterious about what's exactly going on and 20 years go by and nothing really happens and uh, Poggio just gives up on the on the manuscript uh, his friend Niccolo Niccoli actually kind of uh, continues a little bit but also in vain and then in the 1450s all of a sudden somebody who had really nothing to do with the hunt of the Germania previously in Rome writes into his notebook that he has seen the Germania. Mm -hmm. And of course we would be very skeptical of that if he had not done what a properly trained humanist would do under those circumstances, which is that he wrote down the incipit and the excipit, so the first line of the Germania and the last line of the Germania. And that means that he must have seen it. There's absolutely no question. We know that um, it reached Rome in the 1450s. Mm -hmm. So the most likely scenario, and this is, again, very, very interesting detective story, the most likely scenario is that Enoch of Ascoli, another manuscript hunter, actually, who was traveling um, in Germany, scouring... um, libraries and monasteries for new manuscripts actually um, was able to lay his hands on the manuscript and bring it to Rome where he tried to to sell it but it didn't really kind of work the way work out the way he had intended um, it's the most likely scenario I kind of I tried to kind of give all the evidence that I was able to find Um the, the the minor flaw in in the reconstruction is that even though it must have been one of the greatest coups and greatest finds um, in the 1450s, he himself does not mention it to anybody, hmm. and it's it's kind of mystified scholars of the Renaissance for many 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 decades. Um, and as you can imagine, um, you know, speculation has gone in all kinds of directions. Um, we don't know. We don't know why, but looking at the evidence, um, taking all the small bits and pieces together, I think at the end of the day, there is no question for me that it was Enoch who actually mm-hmm. brought it to Rome. The question that... I still have is why did he not mention it to anybody? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So let's move the story forward a step. Mm-hmm. Uh, the manuscript has been discovered, and at some point uh, it is disseminated and becomes connected uh, for all time, it seems, with modern Germans. How does that happen? Yeah, um, it happens um, primarily because of um, the Cardinal of Siena, Aeneas Silvio Piccolomini, who was a childhood friend of Enoch of Ascoli. So there's one of those links um, that I mentioned earlier. 
he had served um, in the Erste had served in Germany in the service of one uh, dignitary or another um, for over 20 years. When he returned to Italy um, to become the Cardinal of Siena, he retained his connections to Germany because that was the way it, it worked. If you wanted power and influence, you either needed a very, very powerful family uh, which Piccolomi did not have, or you needed a powerful foreign base. So he he tried to kind of sell himself as the expert on German affairs. In that role, he received a letter from Germany, from a secretary, um, warning him that the German church um, was close to rebellion. They were increasingly unhappy with um, the, the Curia's policy in, in Germany um, and they they complained that all their money and all their gold uh, went to Rome to finance ambitious projects of the, of the Pope. Um, and Inia Silvio used that complaint to not only write think three letters, private letters, um, but also to sit down and write these three volumes uh, presented as an epistolary treatise, um, but actually meant also as an as an advertisement of himself for for the for the papistry, um, and he in that treatise that he dedicated to another cardinal, he uses Tacitus Germania to show that the German ancestors, the Germanic tribes, as Tacitus and some other classical authorities so clearly show, were a horde of bestial brutes. (laughs) And that the fact that the Germans of the 15th century were able to read and write was almost solely owed to the great positive influence of the Christian church. (laughs) So he uses the Germania to depict the Germanic tribes. So basically what happens, uh, there are two really important things that happen. One is that Piccolomini draws that line. He establishes the Germanic tribes Tacitus wrote about as the German ancestors. Mm -hmm. And the second important thing that happens is that he uses the Germania to depict those now German ancestors as bestial brutes. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, that didn't sit exactly well with German humanists, who would then familiar with Ineasio Piccolomini's description, reread the Germania and in turn cherry pick all yeah. those positive characteristics that Tacitus had attributed to the Germanic tribes. And in that process form the admirable German ancestor as a counterpart to the Italian Roman ancestor. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, you said earlier, you know, the, the past is a, is a foreign country. 
Um, that probably was to some extent true of the Renaissance usage of the past as well, but more importantly, for the for the for the humanist, the past was a, a, a foreign country that they fought over, mm-hmm. and they fought over that territory with very very presentist interests. Yeah, yeah. There's a Spanish saying I like when I think about these things, about the polyvalence of text. I, I think it's a Spanish saying. I was told it was. And it is, uh, you find in the islands what you bring to the islands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is what's happened here Yeah, with this text. Well, so that, to a certain extent. I mean, I actually just had a very interesting discussion. I mean, maybe we should pick, we should kind of talk about this a little bit later. But the, the discussion I had was, um, so what 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 happens actually? Is it the Germania and its the, the characteristics um, that it assigns to the to the German ancestors that then kind of shape the whole debate, or is it the debate that kind of shapes the interests with which the readers then turn to the Germania? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know the, the question hen or egg. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are some instances in which one can nicely show um, that it really works both ways, that there is a particular passage in the Germania that really changes the debate, but it only changes the debate because of the framework that was already there. Mm-hmm. No? Mm-hmm. no, I mean, I, I see just what you mean. There, there are th- it's an analogy that comes to mind is when you... Uh, when you watch uh, movies from the 1940s and 50s today, one of the things that everybody sees that nobody saw in the 40s and 50s was that everyone is smoking. Yes. Everyone. Yes. And they didn't even notice that. Absolutely. It was yes. just not on their radar. But That's to us, a very, very good analogy. Yeah, I yeah. really like that. I mean, yeah. you see it and you're just kind of gobsmacked. Like, oh, my God, they're just smoking everywhere and yeah. everyone is doing it. But I think yeah, people like, in the 40s and 50s never saw it. Yeah, or, you know, Mad Men. We're just like, oh, my God. Right. I mean, these people are just smoking and drinking. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think – and I think it's the same way. You look at these things with different eyes and you just see different things in them because they're rich. And yes. there's there's lots of things in them to see, and you're going to see a different thing than somebody else is. So let, let's move it. Let's move the um, let's move the the story forward just a little bit to the to the um, to the 18th century, and the first sort of ethnographic uses of of the text uh, among Enlightenment thinkers, and a kind of solidification of this stereotype of the Germans. Yeah. Let me just kind of add before I, t- I think you, you kind of want to talk about Montesquieu a little bit. I yeah, think. I do. Yeah, yeah. But let me just kind of add one more thing to um, to the German humanists mm-hmm. um, because I, I should really mention that the the stereotypical German um, for for many many centuries, um, I, you know, I know, honest and somewhat kind of simple minded um, and very kind of brave and courageous like um you know a decent character that german profile is shaped around 1500 Mm -hmm. and it is shaped because german humanists realized that they simply could not compete with the italians um with an eye towards the past on intellectual grounds i mean there was no question um that Rome had produced a culture and literature 
that was superior mm -hmm. to you know anything that was produced anywhere else in Europe, mm -hmm. pretty much. Um, so their way out of that dilemma was to basically just kind of change the focus and um, establish their ancestors as these moral warriors. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the Romans might have been intellectually superior, but they were a bunch of debauchés, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas our German ancestors, they were really kind of moral people. Yeah, this is exactly what the Russians do in the 19th century. They, because they look at the West and they say, well, these people are obviously culturally superior to us. We cannot match them. Therefore, we will say that we Russians are uh, ethically pure. We are simple but pure and strong. See, they have been adulterated by their, by their yeah. cultural machinations. We, however, have been untouched by all this finery. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's exa yeah. I mean, it's also interesting to see how these mechanisms are just repeated. So, yeah. yeah right. so, so what happens in, in the – I mean, that's also – Something that I really want to, want to stress again, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Montesquieu, because we should not forget that it's really not like the the Germania was an incredibly popular and influential text, also outside of of Germany. Actually, for many many years, decades, it would be way more influential outside of Germany than anywhere in inside <laughs> of Germany. Um, and Montesquieu, whose Spirit of the Lost, is probably. I mean, to my eyes, is really one of the most influential texts of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really kind of shows up everywhere. Um, and Montesquieu uses the Germania um, repeatedly. He was actually so familiar with the text that he would quote um, from it without checking his mind, <laughs> without checking his notes. Um, <laughs> And um, I have students that do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I I did it once myself with also with Tacitus in the paper for for my professor, and of course I got it wrong. Yeah. And and I said when he kind of pointed it out to me, I said, well, but I I I, I quoted it just out of you know from memory. And he said, well, I also remembered it without checking my notes, but then I checked my notes. <laughs> I, just, yeah, I learned a lesson there. So. Um, yeah, so Montesquieu uses it, and ultimately he uses it to establish or to kind of profile, characterize um, the northern spirit. Mm -hmm. um, so Montesquieu is like the, the, this idea um, that a people was characterized by a specific spirit. Uh, L'Esprit Général, mm -hmm. had been around even before Montesquieu. But it is Montesquieu's um, use and elaboration of that concept that really establishes it as a major player in intellectual debates. Mm -hmm. And he uses, basically what happens, not so much Montesquieu himself, he rather kind of hints at it and kind of suggests that connection. But um, readers of Montesquieu were very, very quick to simply identify the German national spirit um, with the description provided by Tacitus. Mm -hmm. To the extent that uh, some then German writers um, would say, if you want to learn about the German spirit, go read Tacitus. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the other really fascinating story 
um, and realization that the the Germania continued its incredible influence over 400 years. Mm-hmm. But it was so successful in doing so because its readers would be so adept at reinterpreting certain passages or the whole so as to make it fit their contemporary latest interests and debates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the 16th century, we have this moral debate, you know, the, the moral German ancestors. In the 17th century, which I found incredibly difficult but also interesting, it's the linguistic debate. What basically happens is that um, intellectuals discuss the origins uh, and histories of, of the various languages and they personify languages in that debate. And what happens is that they simply attribute um, the characteristics of the Germanic, uh, of the German ancestors, to the German language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the 18th century, the Germania is now used to actually establish and profile the German national spirit. Mm-hmm. And then, if we want to take it into the next century, what mm-hmm. happens there is that the Germania serves to specify the the Aryan race. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's actually talk about that right now because. Uh, I would say prior to this moment, the, the stereotypes that are drawn from Germania are reasonably benign, but in the 19th, later 19th century, they yeah. become far more malevolent. Can you explain yes. how that happens? Yeah, so we have um, slightly after, almost contemporary with Montesquieu, slightly later, the, the racial debate starts, or the racial theories um, are developed. Um, there's some people, um, scholars who play a major role um, in that, like uh, Blumenbach would be one. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, again, many of them, use the Germania in an attempt to profile the the Germanic, the Nordic, the Aryan race. Um, when I, I should actually mention that, I mean, it's absolutely clear um to me, that somebody like Blumenbach, he was actually an, an eminent scientist at the University of Göttingen. Um, he was um, very, very outspoken um, in his condemnation of racist remarks on what you know people at the time would call Negroes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, well, I think it's safe to say that Blumenbach himself was not a racist. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know there was this there was this interest in racial differences, um, and there was an effort to actually kind of categorize um, the different um, yeah looks um, of mm-hmm. peoples, and um, one it's it's actually very disturbing to see how somebody even like Blumenbach would. Um, somehow slip from scientific observations to at least um, partly racial comments. So I, you know, I said he was not a racist, but he, one can see in his writings how racism is actually kind of prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this whole debate, um, Tacitus played a major role, not the least because of this, 
famously infamous paragraph four in which he describes the typical Germanic man and woman as, you know, tall, um, light-haired, um, of kind of piercing blue eyes, light-skinned. Um, and those characteristics were seized upon uh, in an attempt to define, yeah, as I said, the Aryan, then the, the Germanic and the Nordic race. And in the context of the 19th century, um, you know, we have these, we have like, um, well, uh, racial writers like Arthur de Gobineau, a Frenchman, yeah, or yeah. also Houston Stewart Chamberlain, mm-hmm. who, I mean, in the case of the letter, Chamberlain was incredibly, incredibly influential. Mm-hmm. And his his Germanic race, this Uber race, uh, in his eyes, is is simply profiled with with the help of Tacitus Germania. Yeah, yeah. Is this a Nietzsche's blonde beast? Is this the you know? Yeah. See, um, I don't know. I'm just asking that. Yeah. No. It's it's interesting because Nietzsche. Um, I'm I'm I've actually I'm I'm very very careful talking about Nietzsche because Nietzsche was actually much more nuanced and differentiated in his comments about both the, um, you know, the, the Germanic race, but also the Jews that then people normally give him credit for. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nietzsche is, is another example of um, how an author became victim, mm-hmm. the victim of later readers and times. Mm-hmm. So um, I looked a little bit at Nietzsche, but really not, not enough to, to kind of feel comfortable, um, you know, Giving giving my opinion. Oh yeah, no, I can never pin that guy down. I, oh. <laughs> I I confess I don't really understand it. I don't think I have the intellectual capacity to do it. But he does have this figure in the blonde yes, beast, he does. Yeah, kind yeah. Of prominently, you know. And I thought, well, yes. maybe. You know, so so how did the um, how did the National Socialists uh, receive and interpret Tacitus? Yeah. So this is really the the the, the scariest bit of the whole of the whole story, um, because. So for centuries, the Germania had shaped debates in which the ideal German ancestor was profiled. Um, towards the end of the 19th century, these, this profile was used by members of the Folkish movement, or a right-wing populist movement. Um, and Heinrich Himmler, uh, the future... Um, Reichsführer SS, so the head of the SS, read the Germania on a train when he was <laughs> 23 or 24. Uh, so in 1923 or 1924, I forget the exact exact year, but I mentioned it in the book. He he's he's poor. He is um, has really absolutely no sense of where he's going, what he's going to do with his life, and he reads the Germania. And the same day, he writes down in his notebook the his enthusiasm and enchantment, actually, with Tacitus' portrait of his ancestors. Mm-hmm. And he promises himself, um, and I, I, I use that um, also in the book because it's just so shocking. So he promises himself... Thus shall we be again, mm-hmm. or at least some among us. Mm-hmm. So there's the second most powerful man of the Third Reich, mm-hmm. the engineer of the murder of millions of people, mm-hmm. 
promising himself that he would try to shape at least parts of the German nation according to what at the end of the day is a highly fictitious Roman construct. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would actually r- remain true to his word. Uh, there are several instances um, in his SS um, that he took over in 1929, appointed by Adolf Hitler. And you can see how he actually tried to use the Germania as a blueprint of his SS soldiers. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those... It's There's another really, really shocking um, link between National Socialists, in this case actually legislation, and a 2,000-year-old text, the Germania, which is the Nuremberg Race Laws. This is uh, the the laws that, uh, among other things, prohibited interracial marriages between Jews and Aryans. And um, it in the the same year, 1936, um, the National Socialist Party honored Günther, who was a prolific writer of uh, racial and racist uh, treatises, and he was honored for his contribution to national socialist legislation. Mm-hmm. And Günther had actually not only quoted Germania in that particular uh, passage that I mentioned earlier, chapter four, but he had also read Tacitus Germania as if the um, Germanic people or tribes had actually practiced a form of um, eugenic policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's clear that he was very, very familiar with the Germania. He quotes it repeatedly. It is clear that he was particularly enthused with that chapter four in which um, Tacitus profiles um, the looks and purity um, of the Germanic tribes. Mm-hmm. And it is clear that, um, you know, according to official statements by the National Socialist Party, Günther had a decisive impact on National Socialist um, legislation. Mm-hmm. So it's hard not to draw a line between the specific Nuremberg laws and um, a paragraph written by Tacitus in 98 CE. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one, I have, we've taken up a lot of your time, but this is fascinating, and I have to ask another question. I don't know if you're prepared for it, but it occurred to me, um, what, is, what is to me peculiarly ironic about this Nazi reading and misreading of Tacitus is that it occurs in the context of the uh, sort of mm, – the greatest moment in classical scholarship the world has probably ever known, and that yeah. is the in, in German universities in the first part of the 20th century. This yeah. was where everybody who was serious about classical scholarship went, even yes. Americans. Um, yeah. You know, and and there had to be people that knew that this was wrong. Oh yeah, they were. <laughs> I, I think I mentioned, but yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to see what actually happened to those few who actually dared speak up. So I already mentioned Eduard Norden earlier, uh, who published his study of the Germania, 
um, in the like the, the first edition was 1918 or 1920, um, in which he basically showed that you know the, the Germania is full of commonplaces. You know, we, <laughs> we, we 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 can't really read this as the birth certificate of our German ancestors, and there was such a storm of protest that in the in the preface to the second edition, he he actually had to seek cover in in ambiguity saying that yes okay it is true that you know some of the things that Tacitus says about the Germanic people um, are you know attributed elsewhere to other people that however does not impair um, the the quality of the Germania as a historical source of the first rank nonsense you know of course that's exactly what it does (laughs) Um, but you know, or somebody else. Also, what I the the way I opened the final chapter on the or the, the yeah final chapter, if you exclude the epilogue on the Nazis, with you know Cardinal Michael von Faulhaber, uh, Cardinal of of Munich Freising, who in 1933, nine months or so after the Nazis took over, um, dares to offer publicly a a fairly nuanced reading interpretation of the Germania, kind of pointing out that actually, um, you know, let's have a look at our kind of fabulous and famous Germanic ancestors. You know, what did they actually look like? And he kind of, you know, he goes through the Germania and comes up with a with a very, very different uh, portrait compared to the Nazis' um, vision of the Germanic mm-hmm. ancestors. It's actually highly reminiscent of Aeneas Piccolomini's right, right, uh, portrait. Yeah of the Germanic tribes 400 years or so before. And what happened was that his speech was burned publicly by members of the Hitler Youth. <laughs> and his uh, there were two shots fired at his residence. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, you know, the, the, the time of the height of, of philological studies. Um, and at the same time, it's also the height of... Um, ludicrous and lunatic interpretations of Tacitus Germania. Yeah, I mean, and this, this goes on today in the American context when people uh, talk about what the uh, Articles of Confederation and the Constitution oh, and the federal yeah, spaces mean. Yes. We know, oh, yeah. more, we know yes. more about that today thanks to the work yes. of many thousands of historians than we ever have before. We can yes. really say some very interesting things about what those people meant. Yes. But the minute we do... People, people start to uh, start to throw tomatoes at us. That's right. Yeah, they will just kind of tell you that you know you're wrong. That a well-regulated you are, you're wrong at the right. end. Of a well-regulated militia doesn't mean you get to carry a firearm in public. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, yes. Yeah. So I mean, I certainly. Yeah. I mean, you may it may be okay to carry a firearm in public, but it isn't excused by this text. But we. Uh, yeah. I, I just find that kind of fascinating. So um, let me ask you one final question: Where do we stand with? Uh, with Germania today, you mentioned a, a statement by Heinrich Böll uh, about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, as you can imagine, um, it once again grew rather quiet around the Germania after <laughs> 1945. Yeah. And I mean, it's really fascinating to see that you know, after it had been prominent, uh, like in you know mainstream newspapers, and I mean, it had really been almost everywhere. It just disappears for almost 20 years. And then very, very slowly, scholars started to reread the Germania, but with a very, very different interest. Um, Got more interested in 
like philological questions, more interested in understanding Tacitus' style, comparing what he says to latest archaeological evidence and all that. And I should actually mention, and I mentioned that also in the epilogue, that, I mean, of course, you know, this, this kind of reading of the Germania had coexisted with the ideological reading of the Germania ever since um, the early 16th century. Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, it was in the minority. You know, the me- majority of readers turned to the Germania to learn something about the Germanic past in order to improve the German future. Um, and this kind of reading has almost completely disappeared. But nevertheless, you know, somebody like Heinrich Böll, who is known for his um, antipathies and his criticism of the Third Reich, in 1979 uh, couldn't help but observe publicly in Die Zeit, which is, you know, one of the biggest, uh, most read intellectual magazines in, in Germany, where he, so he observed that in reading the Germania, he he couldn't help but realize how up to date it was, <laughs> and it, it was just I mean, a, a contemporary German classicist kind of yeah. was up in arms uh, just a few weeks later and said, you know, this is the kind of naive reading that one simply must not undertake, especially given the history of that particular text. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, uh, but I mean, by and large, you know, we have we're now reading the Germania more soberly from a greater distance. But I think it's an it's an it's a very important lesson um, that Tacitus himself did not write a most dangerous book. Mm-hmm. No, it was his readers that made it so, mm-hmm. and it's the responsibility of a reader to prevent anything like that from happening again. Mm-hmm. I think you're bearing that responsibility for all of us, Christopher. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, uh, very much. I got a lot of other stuff to do, so I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're carrying the message there. That's good. <laughs> um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I appreciate it. We've been talking to Christopher Krebs about his new work, A Most Dangerous Book, Tacitus Germania, From the Roman Empire to the Third Reich. Um, Christopher, I want to close the interview by asking you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? Um, well, right now I'm working on, on Caesar, Gaius Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, you know, I'm doing two things. I'm writing a, producing a commentary on the seventh book of his Perum Gallicum, kind of mm-hmm. you know, tr- trying to um, live up to my responsibility as a reader and <laughs> ex- explain that particular text, um, the meaning of its w- words and so on. Um, and we're also doing a, the Cambridge Companion to Caesar, like uh-huh. in, which we um, offer a collection of interpretive essays um, of his work uh, and um, their literary afterlives. Uh-huh. Um, and I've started to think a little bit about... Um, another kind of more historical book, um, which is probably going to deal either with um, manuscript hunters in the 15th century, because I I got rather intrigued in writing that particular chapter. Or I might also, I haven't really kind of made up my mind, but another idea I'm playing with is doing something on silence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
well, the history of silence. All that sounds very interesting to me, and I hope that you come back on the show when uh, you are done with all of it. So today, again, we've been talking with Christopher Krebs about a most dangerous book, Tacitus Germania, From the Roman Empire to the Third Reich. Go out and buy it. Christopher, I want to say thank you for being on the show. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you very, very much, Marshall. This was a great pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Christopher Krebs about his new work, A Most Dangerous Book, Tacitus's Germania, From the Roman Empire to the Third Reich. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.